Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I bring you a special episode of the podcast. Today I speak with a fellow partner and advisor at Coda Capital, Will Douglas, or William Douglas. Uh, Will is in our Brisbane office and joined me in early September this year on a trip with Ibex Investors, where we spent four days in Israel with uh, some clients and some other advisors, predominantly US investors, uh, touring uh, Israel, speaking with the investee companies of that fund, as well as uh, other people who could give us good information and intelligence about the investment opportunity. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy the podcast. Um, I think it gives a good flavour of that investment opportunity that we've captured uh, through podcasts with IBEX in the past and spoken about. Please remember that this uh, podcast isn't designed to be a recommendation of any one particular fund or investment. Uh, People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to uh, also take advice before proceeding with any investments. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Will Douglas, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Well, this is uh, a slightly unusual episode of Inside the Rope and a a special version, I I guess I can call it. Perhaps you can give us an outline of why we're doing this podcast. Well, David, you and I travelled to Israel a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We've been associated with a fund over there, all based in Israel, as well as the US, called Ibex Investors. And both myself personally and clients of ours have invested through IVEX to get access to Israeli companies, both publicly listed companies as well as private companies. So our listeners would be familiar with uh, Justin and Adam, and we've done two, two podcasts uh, with Justin, the founder and lead um, uh, portfolio manager, uh, as well as we did one with their uh, driverless vehicles fund. And this, is, this trip was totally about uh, the the Israel fund and the opportunities in that fund. And just as a headline, you know, what, what, what's that fund look and feel like? Well, they've um, structured the fund to give clients access to both publicly listed companies and private. And I think ideally it's really to provide liquidity. So the fund offers um, investors the ability to invest into the fund every quarter. And also they can take funds out of the investment every six months. So instead of having the mentality of being into a startup or a venture fund where you invariably have to lock up your money for five to seven years, this fund is being designed to provide liquidity for the investors, but also to give people access to, I think, what they think is the exciting part of the Israeli story, which is very much that startup nation and the, the startup stories predominantly around high tech. And talk to us a little bit about who we were meeting with and what we did, and I'll chip in, yeah, given uh, I was there. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the first experience of going to Israel was at the Hong Kong airport and the level of security that we met on the way through. So whether or not I had a, a look the, about me or, or otherwise, I, I certainly found that the security was, was, um, was high. I uh, approached the transit desk only to be asked about 25 questions, and as we both know that most of the people or most of the high school students get selectively um, screened to then get um, into uh, military 
service for two years. So I guess very quickly I started to think about who this person was at the transit desk and what experience he had in the military. I, I sort of had or thoughts. Her, lots, of, lots of them are female. I think disproportionately the people asking questions I've always experienced tend to be female. Maybe they're trying to make us comfortable. But uh, certainly I sort of thought to myself, this person has possibly interrogated people for real. So it got quite um, serious very quickly and he decided to ask me how I've packed my bag, how many bags I checked in. When he asked me how many bags I checked in, he asked me how I'd locked my bag, whether it was via a lock or a combination. Then he went on to ask me what my combination was and I sang like a canary. Uh, so I went through security, only to get met at the gate. My bag was, was searched. I was asked to come back in 30 minutes. Eventually we got on the plane. So that was my first sort of touch of what it meant to be sort of not yet in Israel, but to get a feel for the security of going into Israel. And I guess from there, from arriving on the Sunday when we met, uh, when we got there on the early morning on the Sunday, I think the whole tour was really ultimately trying to get us to be comfortable with Israel as a country. So it was certainly a mix of the cultural side. So we got to see things like the Dead Sea and Masada and Enkedi. We got to see you know, businesses outside of tech. So we went to vineyards and good restaurants. Uh, we had a nighttime tour on the Tuesday just to get a feel that there is life there, that people are, feel secure, that there's, there's, there's an economy there, there's 9 million people who live there, there's a thriving sort of economy. But, but, but behind that, I guess it's a sense that um, life goes on. Even though they're facing a lot of issues, um, life goes on. And I think for, as an investor, um, I think that was very important to just get, get comfortable around Israel first before you start thinking about investing there. What was really interesting, I'd read Startup Nation, we've spoken to that, and many of uh, our listeners are familiar with that, and Justin speaking with what has gone into Israel to create this environment and this sort of necessity is the mother of all invention, that they're surrounded by people who won't trade food and vegetables with them. So lo and behold, they're the world's leader in water technology and growing vegetables in the desert 20 years later. Um, so this story of you know, a people that just won't give up, uh, a people who are forced to be ingenious, uh, defence spinning out lots of uh, uh, technology byproduct and also the training and education that they get formally through there and you know, cyber security, they account for 0.01% of the world's population and about 20% of the revenues in cybersecurity software. One of the things that you mentioned there is uh, Masada, the, the, the place that we visited uh, the first day, which is a, a ruin um, and you sort of geographically located overlooking the Dead Sea and you know people can read all about it. But it the, the story I took out of walking and touring that was the almost the Israeli people or the Jewish people uh, forming a part of their mentality that I think is very strong in that um, we, we, we sort of gave up at Masada, but we won't give up again type of thing. And, and that sort of stuck through me, stuck with me through the tour. Yeah, I think the history is complex. Uh, before I went on the trip, I bought it, went down to my local bookstore and bought a, bought a book on the, the history of the Middle East. And it's, it's complex, it's a complex history. The, the, the Jewish people have been there for a very long time. And as you said, Masada, Masada for us, I mean, to go there means you, you sort of, things become tangible, you know, it, and the Masada story, as you said, is a very powerful one, I think, for the Jewish people in terms of they never want to be faced with a, another Masada. 
So it was it was a great way of an introduction for us into the country on that first day where we got to see Masada and the Dead Sea and Engedi. If anything, it kept us awake um, until we had the official start of the tour on the Sunday night. And following that, we really spent a lot of our time with meeting some of the unlisted private companies, which make up about 15 companies or about 40% of the 350 million USD roughly portfolio that IBEX manage uh, in that space. And the other 60% listed and we met some of those companies and we spoke to some economists, some university heads and so forth. Maybe we could sort of get into the weeds a little bit on a couple of those um, private companies mm. um, that we spoke about. I, I was impressed by a couple of them. I don't know about yourself, but maybe we, you know, Glassbox was one that stood out to me as just being something that uh, I could easily understand and I could easily see uh, the revenue projection of it and where the valuation of that company was going because of that. And, and my summary of that, correct me if I'm wrong here, we'll chip in. Um, I would explain that to someone as imagine an airline, any airline around the world. Um, you've got a couple of issues with your website, which is now a big transactional hub of how people buy your product. Um, one of them is people saying, well, actually, no, that warning didn't come up to say that it had limited baggage or I could only refund it within the t first 24 hours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and people would say, well, no, on my Mozilla or my Google Chrome or my Internet Explorer, that warning didn't come up, uh, <clears throat> which I think is a huge issue for a lot of people trying to do uh, business and commerce over the internet, which is just growing exponentially, of course. They have a solution which just as when you hear the, the phone call recording allows someone to play it back to actually what was said and agreed to actually have a cloud stored recording of that session that will actually play back what that person actually saw. So they can actually say, no, well, here's a copy of what you saw. And we can see from this copy that this warning was here. So that's one part of their business. The other part of that is if you are an airline or something, someone similar to that, you're also very interested in how people use your website and how they browse and how they, whether they can find the information, whether they transact, where they get stuck. So you can actually use the data analysis out of Glassbox's uh, software solution to re-engineer or reorganize or make decisions about um, how you optimize your graphic, graphic user interface or similar to optimize and enhance your business. Um, I thought Glassbox was really probably the standout for me. Yeah, when I talked to Brian, who's um, heads up, always one of the people at Ibex, he thought that Glassbox was their most exciting investment. And I think if you look at the history of it, a couple of years ago, they were raising equity at a $30 million valuation. Um, and the legal and compliance side that you talked about was their, pretty much their singular focus. And what, what I found really interesting about their presentation is that they've then used that to evolve. So they've evolved into giving feedback on marketing, evolved to giving feedback on where do people get stuck on the websites, you know, so they can feed that information back to all sorts of different people. So they've currently got a valuation in the portfolio at $85 million. Um, and they are looking at raising further equity at a high valuation. And also, I think for listeners, it's interesting that IBEX on occasion can offer single investments outside of the fund. So this class box was one of the investments they were able to offer to their unit holders to say, look, if you would like to have a singular company debt or an investment, 
then these, this is an investment that you can take on if you're interested. So Glassbox was one of those investments that they could take on. So your opportunity to invest alongside IBEX individually so you can take a bigger position into it. Um, another one that we met with, uh, which, was, which was interesting and, and pretty easy to understand and articulate, um, was Nexar, the, the company which on first glance you look at it and it's a sort of dash cam, the type of thing I'd buy for my 18-year-old son and stick in the front of his car with P-plates and insist that you know he doesn't get fuel or he's not allowed to have his rego paid for, whatever, unless this thing stays on it. Mm. Um, so it's a, a good piece of hardware, but I think the real smarts in that business is the fact that they've built a whole software platform sitting behind it that gives real-time diagnostic and reporting around incidents so that they're partnering with, I think, AIA mm. in the US and insurers in the US where they have an app that if there is an incident, you can go back and have a look at the video, the mapping of that video over similar to a Google map to show which way you're traveling and it'll show you you know, where you're traveling, the G-force, the braking force, and give a full report, you know, almost instantaneously when there is an issue. Um, that's a really interesting um, business. And, you know, this got to remember that Waze, the, the, the GPS guidance system that competes with Google Maps or similar, came out of Israel. Mm. Uh, mobile Eye, the technology company that Intel bought for $16 billion about four years ago with all the detection uh, for, for cars, for autonomous vehicles and lane changing and all of that type of thing came out of Israel. And Nexar similarly coming out of Israel, but all of its businesses in the US, as many of these companies are. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the theme that we came across quite often was Israel's 9 million people. If they've got a great idea, a lot of the time they won't list those businesses in Israel because naturally they need to take those ideas global. And I think that's a real driving force for them is that they're, they're addressing global issues and then going to probably their, their first port of call is the US. So a lot of them go to the US first to try and test, test out their products. And Nexar is, it's really, it's, it's testing ground is New York City. So they talk about how they can map New York City every five minutes. So you're getting a, a live view of New York every five minutes with all the Nexar cameras, which I think is just quite amazing. Um, and then also what struck me as well is that the amount of data that these companies must be using, it's all in the cloud, but the data with the AI especially, I think that the amount of film clips they've got of accidents of Nexar users is almost like they could create potentially like their own reality TV show. And it would be quite, I would think, quite entertaining. <laughs> but I mean, the data, the data they, they are using in these businesses must be just astronomical. I mean, the AI stuff, they're picking up, you know, um, traffic cones, they're picking up people walking across the street. I mean, it got, I got a sense that the technology, if you, are, if you are willing to let technology into your life with all of this information that they're gathering, the AI information, the cameras, everything, I know it all sort of makes sense, but I guess a common theme that we came across in our trip as well is what does this all mean for privacy as well? Oh, Absolutely. And, and you know, you're seeing the Chinese, and we've spoken about that in the podcast, the 
advantage the Chinese may have in artificial intelligence and may be able to leapfrog the US because the US will most likely follow the European lead on privacy where the Chinese have a different regard for it. The Israelis are probably pretty commercial about things. Uh, it wasn't high in the discussion points. I think I the, the Chinese have got some sort of social credit system, don't they? So in some cities, and I think they've actually tried to introduce that in, into Darwin as well. So in Darwin, they have cameras and systems that monitor people's use of particular technology mm -hmm. as they walk through the city. So they understand that on a particular hour of a day, most people are looking at as they walk past your store, they might be on Facebook more than they're on Instagram. And if they're walking past your store, they know that that person is in the city. And it's more likely that he's looking at that social media and then they pop up an ad on their screen to say, you just walked past the store, we know that you've bought this product before, maybe you should think about buying something else. So I think there was a lot of that, wasn't there, of people yeah. trying to get ahead of consumers, trying to basically make decisions for them or, or prompt them. And I guess it's just a matter of how far you're willing to let this technology into your life. Well, it's really easy. I know, you know on the desk here in the office, we've got uh, one advisor partner who, you know, very cynically is turning off the Google Assistant all the time and everyone's listening and et cetera, of one age demographic. And then, you know, uh, Tom, uh, my associate, sits next to me of, a, of another de demographic and a generation. He says, look, I don't care if it's listening to me as long as it's prepared to help me. Yeah. And um, I guess one of the, one of the other um, private companies we talked about was Cobwebs. Yep. Cobwebs was the um, artificial intelligence use of publicly available social media data to effectively web or make connections between people and potentially people who might do not necessarily socially acceptable things. Uh, they were the people that they were looking for, for example, criminals or otherwise, that they might be able to predict are going to actually do some sort of act, which is uh, not necessarily the way we want them to act. Yeah. So that was the um, that was the intelligence gathering data through, through cobwebs. Got it. Now, actually, one of the things that hit me while we were talking about Nexar there that I didn't appreciate un until this trip. I was back up. I was in Israel with a client in May uh, that was put on by the Australian Israel Chamber of Commerce, and then this separate trip with Ibex was a little bit different. But one of the things the penny didn't really drop to me was. One of the secret sources I think Israel has is this huge uh, labor force they got from the ex-USSR when it broke down, um, you know, 89, early 90s, the, the huge amount of immigration they had, but it wasn't just any immigration. It tended to be very highly skilled, very highly educated, you know, science, technology, engineer, math, doctors, um, of the Jewish people of the ex-USSR who, who took that opportunity to immigrate. Uh, you know, I think the Nexar uh, founder may have been, judging from his accent, um, from that background, that hit me and I did a little bit more research. So, you know, you've got in the West Coast of America all of this smart capacity people who, you know, Lockheed, spun off in, in the West Coast and Stanford and all of these smart entrepreneurial spirit. And I think one of the things I saw was Israel having, you know, a real melting pot, but a lot of smart people, but a, a huge, smart Russian 
labor force which is working on this, or ex-Soviet Union anyway, which was interesting. Yeah, I guess the old joke is that uh, why did the why did the US get to the moon before the Russians? It's because they their German scientists were better than theirs. <laughs> As I say in Hamilton, the American, I saw Hamilton when I was in London a couple of years ago, and they, there's a there's a line in that musical that says, "Immigrants, we get the job done." So um, they're motivated. But right, it's it's an environment where necessity is definitely the mother of invention. And I guess as well, the sense is, even though you're very safe when you're there, you do get a sense that the issues that they're facing are very, are very close. And because of that geographical proximity, they become more real. So they're dealing with issues very much on their doorstep. You know, what, what struck me was that we're in Tel Aviv and the West Bank is only 16 miles away, that Gaza is probably only 20 miles down the coastline. So... You know, they're developing cities. In the past, they developed cities because a lot of their countryside was covered in more military operations and bases. Therefore, they didn't, they couldn't have high buildings because a lot of planes needed to land relatively close. All of those sort of things that we sort of take for granted, they sort of had to evolve with this very much front of mind, which is their their neighbours aren't necessarily friendly, but they're also very close. Yes. It, it it is remarkable, isn't it? They're, they're not very compromising and they're very direct. You notice everywhere you get up in the morning and you go for breakfast and everything, you know, there's not much mucking around or beating around the bush. And you also sense that obstacles that are in their way uh, are mainly suggestions, not really something that's really going to stop them from doing what, what, what they need to do. Yeah, I, I think um, everything's up for negotiation, which I think in business is a, is a good thing. You know, they they are... They're um, savvy, I guess you call it, but they are very direct. Um, you know, we had our our tool guide. I think you, you were trying to get back onto the um, the uh, down from Masada on the um, cart, yes. and she, the man, wasn't going to allow her to get onto this thing with us. You know, with four, four tourists waiting for us to get back on this um, on this chairlift, and there was a bit of negotiation going on. It got a bit heated at times. time. Eventually they came to an agreement. We got on this thing, thank goodness, so we got, got down the mountain. But um, we came across that, what, even with the investors we were with and also the people that we met, is that I guess the common saying was, that's Israel. So I guess a lot of countries have their own sayings. Fiji is sort of Fiji time. Yes. Whereas in Israel, it's sort of the common, the common saying is, that's Israel. They're direct. They just get, they get it done. And I guess the, the also I guess quite common in tech is that they are they are um, comfortable with failure. So you know, we they came across quite often that a lot of these startups, um, it's not you know, they're not afraid to fail. It's it's not a dent. It's actually like a badge of honour, as they talked about. Yes, and and they're they're willing to learn and move on quickly and. Uh... Uh, learn from that and redeploy in that sort of logic loop fashion, which is similar to the west coast of the US. Um, one of the things I was interested in when we were talking about the economics of the region and the area, and it is such a small um, country and, you know, physically being in Australia, you can't sort of understand how small it is. You know, you can, you know, sort of, we drive to the snow or somewhere like that and, you know, you, you've driven all the way around Israel in that same time with 9 million population, um, but it is growing. Um, the population is very dense and it's forecast to get, you know, much more dense. Um, they're, they're talking about and, and the infrastructure, you can see it coming online. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting was the reserves. They've never had any natural resources, so they've been very dependent on the US 
and oil and, and, and supply. Um, but now they've discovered off in the ocean, but under Israeli control, um, you know, meaningfully large gas reserves that could see them hypothetically in a position where they may export um, gas to somewhere like Egypt. And, um, you, know, you know, that could be a real change in, in geopolitical relations yeah. for the area. Energy could be the ties that bind them together, not possibly. Not, not that I can make political statements, but that was possible. That was a, an interesting comment that um, they could be in a situation where they, they do export. And also what was interesting to me is that they've been consistently running a current account surplus. Yes. Which, you know, they don't have a huge amount of exports. I think it was sort of potash and sea salt and potentially natural resources in the future. But yeah, that's they're right. running a strong current account surplus. Their GDP growth has been relatively very strong relative to other developing and developed countries. Strong population growth. So you said 9 million. I think they're targeting 17 million in the next sort of 10 years. Um, so it's a strong story, and I, I, I guess geographically we were able to get down to the south of Israel, which most of the population is sort of in that middle part of Israel, sort of in between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and sort of north, mm. but only 10% of the population is in the south, which is the larger part of Israel, which is interesting, and they're trying to open up the Negev Desert. They're trying to relocate a lot of government sort of... Um, departments down to Beersheba where the Ben Gurion University is. So they're trying to open up that part of the country, even though it's quite barren. I guess really if you go back 60 or 70 years, Tel Aviv was mostly a desert anyway. So they've done an amazing job to sort of transform that country. So you wouldn't sort of count them out to do that again in the south of Israel. Yeah, it's intriguing how A, the PR and the thinking behind, you know, there's very much this sort of nationalistic line and it sort of populate or perish and, uh, you know, the Negev in the south is very much part of that for them. They, they, don't, they certainly don't take anything for granted. I think they were very, they're very promotional, they're very proud of yes. their country, but it's certainly it's not something that they are taking for granted. I think they're all very sort of promotional, like I said, promotional of the country. They're, they're very proud and promotional and they support and they, they really welcome the interest that we had and our group had in coming to Israel. Any of the listed companies that we spoke to or any other private companies sort of stand out to you, Will, that you think are worth mention? I think people, it's, it, I know we focus on this fund, the, the IVEX Israeli fund as being high tech. I think about well, just a couple of interesting facts, less than 13% of GDP is high tech. So there's a big part of their GDP which is not high tech. It is a growing part of the economy. There's something like 1,300 startups a year. But we heard from one of the businesses, Strauss. Strauss is a stock standard food company. And yep. a lot of this people- like would, a PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Amatel Yeah, Jane, Unilever, 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 that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So Strauss started as a dairy farm in the north of Israel and they took over the dairy farms. Um, so Unilever took over Strauss's dairy farms ice cream business, which is really interesting for me because a client that we have in the Coda business, their ice cream business got taken over by a multinational as well. So it's really interesting. I sort of made that connection when I was listening to that presentation. But Strauss has gone from Israel, very strong in Israel, to becoming a market leader in dips and spreads in guacamole in the US. It's got about 65% market share. And then it's got a third of the market share in Brazilian coffee. And it's also promoting water solutions in China. So you've got this 
food company in Israel started as a dairy probably 50 years ago, has now gone global and has got meaningful market share in the products that they produce. So I thought that was a very interesting story. Yeah, the CEO uh, of that organisation, she was very impressive. Yeah, that's right. It was a good story. So it was a nice, it was refreshing to see that there are investments within the fund that are not purely tech and high tech. So, Will, I think we've covered that off pretty well. Is there anything else that you think our listeners or you'd make want to make a point uh, before we wrap up? I think Israel is, um, and especially, you know, thank the IVEX team for, for hosting us. I think we had a, you know, it was a busy four days. We got to see startups. We got to see private companies. We got to see public companies as well as getting comfortable with the, the country itself. So we had a sort of top to bottom vertical integration, I think, and got a good feel for the place. I know you've been there before, but for me, I think on top of that, which was really interesting, was uh, visiting Jerusalem. So Jerusalem being the the old city, you know, the, the, the epicenter of a number of religions. And for me, the historical part of that and the, the tour that we did was very interesting. So I think if you're not interested in tech and you don't want to go to Israel to talk to startups and private tech companies, then uh, there's a lot of other things you can do. We didn't even venture north. So there's a lot of things that we could have seen north, but we simply just ran out of time. And in terms of the fund and your uh, instinct or feeling regarding the investment opportunity uh, before you went on the trip to after you went on the trip? I think um, I was more comfortable with the investment after I went on the trip. And if you look at the performance, I guess it's maybe just to wrap this up, a bit of a snapshot of the performance of the fund this calendar year to date. So at the end of August, the fund was up 6.6% calendar year to date in US dollars. So as Australian investors, we've got some benefit of a stronger US dollar. But if in US dollar terms, um, if you think of the fund and the potential within the publicly listed stocks, which is about 60% of the portfolio, but there's about three companies that within their privately listed um, portfolio that they expect to raise capital for at a, a, a relatively higher level or a higher level than their current valuation in the book. That's quite promising. Um, so um, you can bind those two. There's a, there's a forecast that this fund will do hopefully quite well between now and the end of the year. And we can assess that performance when we get the numbers through probably in sort of late January. Will, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we get to do more trips like this in the future. Great. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.